Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. The first two years of Risk episodes, the ones from October 2009 to October 2011, were behind a paywall for a while. So now, every other Thursday, we're rerunning them for free. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the 19th episode of Risk ever to be heard, it premiered in June of 2010, and it's called Regrets. Drive across the Folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was Arms up top, Todd Goldstein's new band. He's also in the Harlem Shakes. We have famous people who send us music, folks. This is the legendary jazz man Stephen Bernstein behind me right now. And you want to know what we're telling stories about today? Regrets. Those times we said, you know what I got? Regrets. And I sure as shit don't see why we shouldn't start with old Zach Broussard. We call his tale The Adventures of Fuckleberry Finn. I remember when I was eight years old. My older brother, Chris, ran away from home. Caused a huge stir. The cops got involved. My parents were worried sick. They sent me to the neighbor's house so they can just drive around for hours looking for him. And when they found him, they freaked out. They were yelling at him, and the cops were there. I just remember the sirens and the lights, and I thought it was exhilarating. My eight-year-old self was pretty impressed by the whole spectacle. So I knew that at some point in time, I was going to try to put my parents through the same thing. You know, just to prove my worth. Time passed, and uh, it was about three years later, I was 11 years old. It was a sugarcane festival in my hometown of New Iberia, Louisiana. Sugarcane festival is just a celebration of everything sugarcane, which is, you know, less than you would imagine. Uh, But, you know, rides all kinds of games, and I remember I had gotten a can of Silly String, and I exclusively sprayed it at my little sister. 
as an 11 year old that's pretty much all i enjoyed just picking on my little sister and it was a great weekend of that until my dad took away my silly string and gave it to my little sister so abby my little sister this little nine-year-old has my silly string and she's kind of turning the tables on me and I just see this as the most unfair situation I've ever been in so I remember my brother running away and I remember the pain that it caused my parents and I thought this is my moment I was uh, really into cowboys and Indians and outlaws and this is my chance to just kind of be on the road out on the prairie just like all my grandfather's old books just like Lonesome Dove I uh, set out with a bag that had just like some snacks. I think I had a pack of Swiss cake rolls. So that's pretty much all I thought I needed. So I went over to my friend Dustin's house because, you know, if I was going to go on the road, I wasn't going to go alone. And I tried to convince my friend Dustin that his parents were just as unjust. Dustin put up a pretty good argument of, I don't know, we're 11. I think that was his main argument. Uh, How are we going to get food? I assured him that we had the Swiss cake rolls. I think that kind of calmed him down. So it was a pretty tough sell. But I think his mom was pregnant at the time. And I remember convincing him that his mom, you know, probably not focused on him at the time. I was like, Dustin, you're not happy here. You don't want this. You need to be out there. You need to be free. So Dustin and I, two 11-year-olds, set off with my Swiss cake rolls and his mom's checkbook. I guess somehow we thought we knew how to write checks or that places would accept checks signed by two 11-year-old boys. We set out through these cane fields. My entire neighborhood was just surrounded by acres and acres of sugar cane fields. We're walking and walking and just... The first few hours are a lot of fun. You're excited about thinking about how angry your parents are going to get. And then it starts to get dark. And for some reason, Dustin starts to get a little scared. And he starts to breathe hard. He's wheezing. And I'm trying to avoid it and, you know, focus on the mission at hand. And that's when I realized that I forget that Dustin had asthma. And he starts having some pretty bad asthma attacks. And I'm trying to calm him down. He's getting nervous. He's like, what are we going to do? Where are we even going? I'm just like, things are going to be fine. You get, we've got the checkbook. We've got the Swiss cake rolls. What could go wrong? He's breathing pretty hard right now, and he realizes he doesn't have his inhaler. So I'm yelling at him. I'm like, you, you remember to bring the checkbook, but you don't remember to bring the inhaler. Dustin's wheezing is just getting worse and worse. And Dustin stops, and Dustin just says, I'm going back home. This is stupid. You're stupid. He called me stupid. And he's just like, screw this. This is dumb. I'm going home. I had to decide if I was either going to do this alone or if I was going to head back with him. In my head, I justified that the damage had already been done. My parents were scared. I could go home and at least sleep in my own bed having accomplished pretty much the same thing. So we make our way back. And it's about 11 o'clock at night by the time we make it back to my house. And I'm expecting to see, you know, the sheriff. I'm expecting to see my mom crying, my dad with a gun for some reason. And I walk up and I see my parents and Dustin's parents in our driveway. There's no cops, nothing. 
I walk up to my dad and I'm very nervous. And my dad is not angry for some reason. He just looks at me and says, Zach, I'm very disappointed. I'm very disappointed. I was going for scared. I was really going to freak these guys out, and uh, I got disappointed. I asked my dad why there wasn't any cops, and he said that they had just realized we were gone. They had just realized we were gone. And I remember that hit me kind of hard, just thinking that uh, they didn't even notice that I was missing until probably maybe 30, 45 minutes prior to that. Sometimes I'm in New York and I've been here for three years and I wonder if my parents back in Louisiana ever get worried or nervous about me being here. And then I just remind myself that they probably just noticed I'm gone. This is Risk. You're listening to the Brand Flakes. So hold on to your raisins. Here is Leo Allen at a recent show. Leo's just a great guy and just a natural comedian. He's going to take us all down the middle path. The Buddhists, I believe have a uh, something they call the middle path which is sort of the way you're supposed to live your life you're not supposed to be too ascetic about things but then again you're not supposed to be too hedonistic as I understand it meaning I looked it up on Wikipedia Um, but this to me sort of summarizes how I feel about drinking um, because I have a lot of friends, maybe some of you do, I, I know so many people who have stopped drinking at this point in my life, and uh, even I myself have experimented with it. Um, <laughs> has anybody ever stopped drinking for a couple months, like a few months, and then after like two or three months, you're like, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. I'm not getting anything more accomplished. I just feel awkward and uncomfortable all the time at work. Uh, it's, it's, it's silly. And, and the thing is, I, you know, the people I know who've definitively stopped drinking, which is fine, that's their choice, they always have a great story. They always have an amazing kind of James Fry type story to tell. You know, it's always like something incredible. Like, oh, I woke up and I had no pockets and I was in an MRI machine holding my neighbor's baby. Like, the kind of story you're like, yeah, you should have stopped drinking that. That's, uh, that makes perfect sense. You'd be, uh, be wrong if you hadn't. But my stories about drinking, they're not that exciting, so it doesn't make me want to stop, because my stories are like, well, I woke up and I had my coat and my shoes on. (laughs) I woke up and I had to watch the last 20 minutes of the Friday Night Lights episode I was watching, (laughs) 
because I fell asleep kind of, oh, I, I didn't get a whole lot done for the past 10 years. Uh, <laughs> you know, nothing that will definitely make you stop. And because I am, admittedly, I'm, I'm good at it. I'm good at drinking. Like I never, I never get into fights. I never become violent. I never have uh, some sort of untoward sexual thing happen. Never, that never happens. I just wake up with my shoes on. Uh, worst case scenario. So I, you know, I just have never stopped. And but but because I am so good, I have had to make certain red flags for myself, which are things that if I find myself doing them, I know. Okay, Leo, you've been drinking way too much. If you're doing this, stop. And I'll share a couple of them with you. Um, right now, and they're all perhaps a little bit pathetic, but um, <laughs> maybe maybe some of you can identify with some of them. The first red flag, which I know I've been drinking too much, is if I ever find myself eating combos. <laughs> sure sign I've been drinking way too much. There's no other time I'm like, I wish I was eating something that had no ingredients that exist on Earth. <laughs> if only someone would combine fake pretzels with fake cheese. Also, whenever I'm eating combos, it's always like I've poured a bunch of bags into a salad bowl. <laughs> and I'm eating them with a ladle, like, I am the king of mediocrity. <laughs> it's never good. Another thing that's a sure sign I've been drinking too much, a red flag for me, is if I ever find myself going from serial killer to serial killer on Wikipedia. <laughs> Definitely been drinking heavily if that's happening. Usually liquor. Uh, like, I've usually, like, checked into a hotel room. It's like 5, 10 a.m. I have a legal pad next to me. I'm taking notes. Like, I'm going to solve the crime. I'm like, there's got to be a pattern. Making anagrams out of the victims' names. These people need, like, so it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And also, as a sidebar, I don't know, have any of you noticed that... Do, do any of you look up serial killers on Wikipedia? <laughs> do you, some do. Thank you. Thank you. Have you noticed? I swear I've noticed this. Like, a, a lot of serial killers on Wikipedia, especially the ones who aren't too well known, they obviously, much like some unknown actors and actresses, clearly write their own Wikipedia pages. <laughs> You read them and it's always like, this misunderstood genius is actually a fantastic dancer. No matter what the red-headed women between the ages of 19 and 24 who go hiking alone during the full moon seem to think. All right, this is the... Capper. This is the this is the red flag where I know it's been a really bad night for me. I've been drinking way too much. If I ever find myself in McDonald's at three in the morning, that is 
the most sure sign I've been drinking heavily because, first of all, why is McDonald's open at 3 in the morning? <laughs> That's, there's not a good, there's no reason for that. And have you, has anybody ever been in a McDonald's at 3 in the morning? Yeah. There's not a lot that are open until 3 in the morning, but in New York there are a few. It's a cold, cold place. <laughs> a cold wind will blow through your soul. You'll be like, oh, what was that? Uh, that was a ghost of a short story I could have written. <laughs> but instead, it will be realized as anger at my future children. <laughs> and the people in McDonald's at three in the morning in line, it's never, very rarely do you see a Nobel laureate in that line. <laughs> Almost never. Are you like, Nadine Gordimer? Uh, <laughs> oh, the rare Nadine Gordimer laugh. Uh, it's, it's always people who are like clutching money in their hand like they're surprised it's there. Like, uh, people studying the menu like they've never seen it before. Like it's in, like a passage from the Talmud or something <laughs> that they're trying to reason out, uh, and, and so I was I was I was in line at McDonald's once at three in the morning, and th this this really happened in my life. I was in line at three in the morning, and I was again obviously I was very intoxicated. That's why I was there, but I was sort of looking around. And I noticed as I was waiting that there was a guy behind the counter just walking around behind the counter and he was like literally going like to himself. And I was like, what is this guy doing? And I looked, watched him for a while and then I, I was like, oh, he works here because he had a uniform on. So I was like, way to go, drunk Columbo. You figured it out. You're a genius. But then I was like, why is he, I was like, oh, he's high. That's why he's acting like that. He was definitely high wandering around the behind the counter because he worked there. So then finally, I got to the front of the line, which was not a victory. And the cashier, he said, what would you like? And I say, could I please have a large fries, 20 chicken McNuggets? <laughs> Further proof of how drunk I was. 20 chicken McNuggets? Why is that even on the menu? In some states, that's part of the DUI test. The cops pull you over and they knock on your window and they say, all right, buddy, how many chicken McNuggets do you want? And if you go 20, they're like, out of the car out of the car. I mean nine, officer. I mean nine. No, we know what you said. We heard what you said. Get out. And there's a kid back there. There's a kid back here? So I get to the front of the line. I say to the cashier, large fries, 20 chicken McNuggets. And I swear to God, the high guy floats over and he kind of talk whispers to the cashier. He goes, hey man, that's way too many fries for that guy. Don't give it to him. And because of our states of mind, 
his saying that led to the weirdest standoff in history. Like the three of us literally did not know what to do. And it was a moment frozen in time, just staring at each other. How long, this might go on forever. Uh, this might never end. This is going on and on. And finally I had, a, I had a, a, um, a thought which made it better for me in my mind. I was like, this is kind of nice. Because actually we're all on the same wavelength. We totally understand each other, the three of us. Uh, and, and then it kind of gets sadder. Um, I got my large fries and my 20 chicken, chicken McNuggets and I found myself at a little bit after four in the morning in my apartment masturbating and eating McDonald's. <laughs> Looking at internet porn. That's the saddest moment you can have as a human being. If you were ever masturbating and you need to stop and pick up a fry and then you eat it, my God, it is time to make some lists. <laughs> so I guess maybe sort of like the noble eightfold, uh, I mean the, um, the middle path, the way I thought about it before I looked it up on Wikipedia, like I'm, like I'm a fucking scholar all of a sudden. But the middle path, I always thought it meant like, this is asceticism, like I don't drink, I don't have, uh, I don't let people hit me when I have sex. Uh, <laughs> And then on the other hand, I thought it meant I do everything, and, and the middle path is in the middle, but no, that's not what it is. It's, it's asceticism on one side, hedonism, and the middle path is up here. It's like a triangle, which he means you sort of don't adhere to either one. You just sort of do what's right, and it sort of rises you above our experiences here on Earth. And that's kind of what I felt I was at with these two people at McDonald's, the three of us. We were kind of in the middle path there if you think about it. All right, thank you very much, everybody. Two people can't even stay together. You can look at the divorce rate. People just grow in different directions. It's a natural thing. It is an infinite distance. People just grow in different directions. Natural thing. It is an, it infinite, is an infinite distance. But it's just human nature. It's part of the dis disintegration. It's disintegration. It's disintegration. Part of future shock. Part of future Part shock. Of future, Part shock. Of future, future shock. All of them had dreamed at one time or another. People flying in from Mars that had nothing to do with reality and were totally about escape and escapism. When people start believing that that's, that's real or that's, that's really what's happening, people just grow in different directions. It's a natural thing. It is an infinite distance. For the dis disintegration. Disintegration. It is an infinite distance. It is an infinite distance. It's a natural thing. I'd lived my whole life as a of some kind. I had been rowing for years, a national level swimmer at 14. And a successful college student at Cornell, I'd finished up my first year. I was one of the healthiest people I ever knew. 
His back surgery I had was pretty routine, just repairing a herniated disc, which most people end up having around 40, but some people end up needing early on. I'd had a pretty common complication, a blood clot. Doctors said, it'll be fine, we'll clear this up in a few days with blood thinners and rest. After about a few days, they realized that not only was it not getting better, it was in fact getting worse, and took several CAT scans to determine that the clot actually extended from my left ankle all the way to a centimeter below my kidney. Every time a doctor came into my hospital room, they had a worse prognosis for what was about to happen. When they realized the real scope of this problem, they said I would have to be at the hospital for a very long time, and eventually six months was given as a minimum amount of time I would need to spend there, just laying there, taking blood thinners, and kind of crossing my fingers. The problem with a blood clot is that if a piece of it breaks off, it kind of has a fast track right to your heart and lungs, so a pulmonary embolism or a stroke, and you instantly die. So laying in a hospital bed felt like the only thing I was even capable of doing as I laid there nervous even to scratch my nose because I thought, is this going to be the movement that breaks off that tiny piece that ends up killing me? And so now, not only is the pain so blinding and so all-consuming, but I'm so afraid to move that I'm literally lying still for days and days at a time. I was laying in a hospital bed with a constant drip of morphine that seemingly was not monitored because I was always in pain. I pressed that button probably 50 times a day. I'm not quite sure how much it was giving me per time. And on top of that, I was usually taking anywhere from 5 to 20 Percocet or Oxycontin a day. So a lot of the fear that was presented to me, like possibly dying or having my left leg cut off, almost didn't register because I was practically on another planet for most of it. A doctor in the ICU happened to have a friend who worked at Hopkins who worked in interventional radiology and was working on an experimental procedure that could work. And the procedure was that he would pump systemic blood thinners through my body for 48 straight hours and that those would actually dissolve the clot from the inside out and it would eliminate the risk of anything breaking off, instantly killing me. The risks, however, were incredibly high because when you're dealing with very, very strong blood thinners, there are other problems you can encounter, like a brain hemorrhage, or in my case, having recent back surgery that would open up and bleed out into your spine and paralyze you from the waist down. The specialist at Hopkins who worked in interventional radiology and had this special cure that was going to be able to fix my blood clot said it was the largest one he had ever seen and probably the largest one in Johns Hopkins history. So my parents and I decided we would call a couple of doctors, get some other opinions, and we started with my back surgeon, who immediately said, absolutely not, I wouldn't touch it, don't do it, that's not how you treat a clot, it's too risky, it's too dangerous. He said one of the biggest risks was if the wound on my back had opened up and started bleeding, that I would be paralyzed. And so he gave us some other doctors to call, and they all confirmed his decision that it really was a terrible idea and something we would inevitably regret. And so then we called a doctor in my family who was an interventional radiologist. He worked in the field. He would obviously understand the predicament. And he said, I've seen the literature, and, and I've heard people talk about it, and I really just think it's too dangerous. 
my parents and I were distraught and we didn't know what to do. And here all of these medical professionals are saying no, but the one person who thinks he has a cure is saying, yes, obviously, we want to talk to him. And my parents said, you know, this is 100% your decision. It's your life. And in my incredibly altered, borderline hallucinogenic state at this point because of the drug use and the pain, they said, it's your call. I was 19 years old, barely able to make decisions about clothing to buy at this stage in my life, let alone life or death experimental surgeries. And I think they expected me to go into a long discussion of weighing the pros and cons and talking about my fears and the risks and everything that could go wrong and everything I had to lose. But after about 15 seconds of silence, I just looked at them and said, let's do it. In order to get to Johns Hopkins, I had to be able to leave Anne Medical Center, and the nurses needed me to get out of bed. And I'm terrified. I'm paralyzed by fear of getting up out of this bed and having that little piece that I'm so afraid of go right to my lungs, and this is it. I don't even get to try the procedure because I'm going to die getting out of bed. And so I summoned everything, and I blocked the pain out of my mind and just thought I had to move on. As scary as it was, I knew I needed to swing my legs around and get out of bed. I leaned over, and it was probably the slowest process I had ever been a part of for rising from a piece of furniture. And I leaned over, and the nurses are looking on, and my parents are in the corner of the room, clearly nervous. And all of a sudden, I hear my mother scream, Allison! And I froze. And I thought, oh my God, what happened? There's a giant wound on my back that clearly could be infected. It could be bleeding. Can she see my spine right now? That seems realistic. And I paused. And she said, when did you get a tattoo? And my dad's standing next to her and he says, Rita, this is really not the time. A life or death situation couldn't eclipse my mother from judging my teenage decisions. I had gotten a tattoo about a year before, miniature sign for Capricorn on my right shoulder, and something that years later I usually forget about or roll my eyes at when someone points it out. And so finally we got to Johns Hopkins and we started the procedure. And it meant me laying in bed for 48 hours with blood thinners pumping through my body. And I just waited there. And I walked out of Johns Hopkins four days later, perfectly happy, healthy, able to move on with the life that I was so worried that I was going to lose. And so months later, I got another tattoo, and I called my mother this time, and I told her. I got a tattoo of three stars on my right foot because, you know, it's not going anywhere. And I heard her give that big, judgmental sigh. She said, you know what, Allison? Whatever happens, as long as I don't see it when you're in a hospital, I don't really care what you do to your body anymore. And I thought, I definitely made the right decision with doing that surgery and taking that risk. Whether I made the right decision about getting these two tattoos, I think the jury's still out.
hearing. And before that, writer Allison Leiby with her amazing journey there and back again. And before that, we had a piece by the man of surprises, Marshall York. Now we've got one last story today, and that comes from me at the live show. This is called Son of a Blah Blah. I was on this solo trek out west. And I had gotten to the very end of it. I had to get back to New York City. And I was broke. So I took a Greyhound bus back to New York. And it was a very circuitous route around the States. So it was going to take a mere 65 hours. (laughs) And about six hours in, I'm already hating the trip when this enormous man enters the bus. He's about as wide as he is tall. He's got dark hair, he's got a huge smile on his face, and he's got a 15-pound tin of pistachio nuts with him. (laughs) I know it was 15 pounds because he sat down right behind me and he said to everyone on the bus, Anyone want a pistachio? I got 15 pounds. (laughs) Well, it turned out that the guys sitting next to him were just as gregarious as he was. So they started chatting and chatting at the top of their lungs and binging on pistachios. And I'm trying not to listen, but eventually it gets to this point where the huge guy says, well, I'll tell you what, you guys aren't going to believe this, but I'm Ron the son of Jerry. And everyone nearby kind of stops a little, and the guys are like, wait, wait, what? What? You're the son of Jerry? Why are you on a Greyhound bus? And he says, no, 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 seriously, look, here is my birth certificate. So I perk up, and I look back, and indeed, he's got a birth certificate laminated in plastic so that he can yank it out at, you know, the best opportunity, just like this one, to prove it to everyone. So at this point, I'm thinking, okay, this guy may or may not be the son of Jerry. 
And then they quiz him a little bit more. They're like, um, really, seriously, why are you on a Greyhound bus back, you know, like about 65 hours doing a trip to the other side of the country? And he said, oh, because dad lives in Vegas, I live in Philly, and I love taking the bus because I get to meet people. <laughs> now I'm like, I don't know if he's really the son or not, but he is clearly just as nuts as the 15-pound tin <laughs> on his lap. So I put in my headphones, I go to sleep, and I wake up about six hours later, and the bus is deserted. I look around, and there's almost no one on it. It's just me and him, basically. And he leans forward, and he says, hey, you mind if I sit next to you? And I'm thinking, what the hell? Like, we finally got it so that we've both got two seats here, and he barely fits into two. But... I was so surprised that I just kind of nodded. You see, I was raised to be ultra, ultra polite, right? In public, I was raised to be super friendly and agreeable. I still have a problem with going too far with that today, which is probably why in the privacy of my own bedroom, I can often be found today with a whip, or a flogger beating the crap out of someone. <laughs> but anyway, he sits down next to me and he says, you know, we exchange names and he says, so tell me about you, Kevin. And I said, well, I'm gay. And I thought, what the fuck? I've never introduced myself that way before. What just happened? That's like my mother's nightmare, you know? Yeah. Hi, I'm Kevin. Favorite activity? Rimming dudes. <laughs> so I, I figured, oh my gosh, it must be he's giving out too much information and it's caught on with me. We're two dudes who are too super friendly with strangers. So he says to me, well, you know what? That's very interesting to hear about you, but here's an interesting thing about me. I'm Ron the son of Jerry and I said, yeah, I, I actually overheard that before. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. Look, here's my birth certificate. I was like, yeah, yeah, I heard that part too. Well, he said, look, I'm glad to hear that you're gay because I am too. And then for about the next hour and a half, he starts regaling me with all of his family's dirty laundry, including the fact that the whole family knows he's gay, but has arranged for him to get married in a month to a poor young lady who doesn't know that he's gay, and on and on. And in the middle of the conversation, he would sometimes mention things like this. He would say, oh, have you seen that movie Shawshank Redemption? I would say, no, I missed it in the theater and I don't have a VCR. He said, oh, well, I'll send you one. <laughs> he kept offering to send me free stuff. A microwave, the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> so I was kind of won over by this. He's like, I just need your address and phone number. So I give it to him. <laughs> and then we get to the point where he's talked my ear off. So I say, oh, you know what? I really would like to take another nap if I could just stretch out here. And he says, okay, he moves. I wake up another six hours later and I'm a little bit startled because I look up and there's this huge face staring down at me from the seat behind me. And it's him. And he says, look at the note. 
find that there's a note laying on me. I open it up and it said, I just had to tell you, you looked so beautiful laying there asleep. And I thought, oh my God, I just gave this guy my address and phone number. This is a Hitchcock movie. This is Strangers on a Train, only I couldn't afford the train. So from there on, I determined, Kevin, do what polite people do. Stop making eye contact with him. When he asks you things, answer with one word answers in a low mumble and try to move away from him on the bus. So for the next 40 hours, that's what I did. We got to Philly, he got out, we said our goodbyes, and about six hours later, I'm back home in Manhattan, I'm asleep in my bed, and the phone rings. I groggily, for some reason, decide to answer it. I pick it up, and I hear, hey, Kevin, it's Ron, the son of Jerry. I'm like, yeah? He says, well, I'm here. I was like, well, what do you mean you're here? He's like, I'm downstairs. I was like, what do you mean you were in Philadelphia? He's like, no, no, I dropped my stuff off and got a Greyhound here. In the several hours we had been away from each other. I said, oh my God. I started thinking quickly, what am I gonna do about this? Cause now this was really freaking me out. I said, okay, 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 I'm asleep right now. And <laughs> really have to continue doing that. Why don't I meet you at seven o'clock at the Oscar Wilde bar on the Upper East Side? He said, okay. Well, I didn't show up there, right? I skipped it. And then I stopped answering my phone for the next two weeks. <laughs> he would call about once a day and he was becoming angrier and angrier about the fact that I wasn't answering his calls. Then finally one day, I got a voicemail from someone else. It was a woman, and she said, Hi, I'm the secretary of Ron You know, the son of Jerry I'm sure she would have faxed his birth certificate if she had it on her. But she said, You have upset the wrong party, sir. Uh, I understand you work in the comedy industry. Jerry has far reach in this industry and you might be sorry about this someday and that was the end of that so now did jerry alter the course of my career i can't really say but there is one little piece of evidence that he might have and that is today when i travel i'm still stuck on a fucking greyhound <laughs> thank you
You're listening to the Bran Flakes. So hold on to your raisins. <laughs> 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 that made no sense.